You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout. I'm the historian here. Uh, and we're fortunate enough to have today as our, uh, as our guest, First Lieutenant Mike Guardia of the U.S. Army, uh, who's uh, presently serving uh, at Fort, Fort Bliss in the 2nd Brigade of the 1st Armored Division. Uh, he's been in the Army since 2008. Um, and aside from being an Army officer in the Armor Branch, uh, he's also a historian. He has his B.A. and his M.A. both in history from the University of Houston. As a scholar and a soldier, a thinker and a warrior, Mike, I think, exemplifies many of the things that have made the United States military the greatest military in the world, uh, and uh, bringing brain and bronze to, brawn together. And in fact, Mike was just telling me about his, his plot to get a PhD at some point. Uh, de- despite being an armor officer, Mike has actually taken quite an interest in guerrilla warfare. His first book, which grew out of his master's thesis, was American Guerrilla, The Forgotten Heroics of Russell W. Volkman. His second book, which is what we're here to talk about today, is Shadow Commander, the epic story of Donald D. Blackburn, guerrilla leader and special forces hero. Now, special forces and intelligence have a very close relationship, and you'll see a lot of that uh, running through much of Mike's story today about Donald Blackburn. Uh, if you go back to World War II, and we actually we will be talking a good bit about World War II today in the Pacific, uh, the Office of Strategic Services during that war had both a special operations and a morale operations branch performing functions that we think of today as largely, though not exclusively, uh, U.S. military functions and primarily belonging to U.S. Special Operations Command. Uh, you see this tight linkage, for example, in the person of Jack Singlaub. Uh, He served in the OSS Special Operations Branch during the war. He was a member of the OSS uh, Jedburgh teams that parachuted into France, worked with the French Resistance. Uh, After the war, he worked with CIA and as a military officer, eventually rose to become a two-star general. As we've seen in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and before then in Vietnam, uh, the CIA and other intelligence agencies uh, work right alongside the U.S. military in some of our messiest wars. And when you hear about precision Uh, special operations and raids like the Sante raid that I think we're going to hear about today or the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound, uh, what, nine months ago now, is intelligence is of the essence. You know, the shooters in in operations like this will will want to know all about uh, the target and uh, down to the finest detail, you know, does this door open in or out, that sort of thing. 
And finally, it's also interesting to note, look this up on uh, you know, Wikipedia or something, it's interesting to note that the OSS SEAL and the SEAL of U.S. Special Operations Command are almost virtually identical. So today you're going to hear a thrilling and remarkable American story, and you'll hear about a U.S. Army officer uh, doing in the Philippines what OSS personnel were doing in France, and then you'll hear how he later goes on to Vietnam and runs sensitive intelligence and reconnaissance uh, uh, missions, in one case stepping in where the CIA has failed. Uh, uh, in an operation called Leaping Lena, I think. Uh, that was the CIA one. Uh, we're in for a fascinating talk in any event, I can assure you. Uh, and Mike Gordia, come on up. Right. Hi. First of all, I'd just like to thank you all so very much for coming out today. Dr. Stout, I'd like to thank you for putting this talk on. It is certainly an honor to be here. Okay. Now the uh, story of the the story of Don Blackburn is, I think, one of the most r remarkable tales in all of military history. Now uh, he, of course, is the subject of my book, Shadow Commander: The Epic Story of of uh, D Donald D. Blackburn, and uh, I'm really honored to be here today in order to share all of this with you. Now on December eighth all the way back in 1941, uh, the Imperial Japanese Army in, invaded the Philippine Islands. And by April of 1942, they had pushed back the American forces all the way to the edge of Bataan, where the Americans, of course, ultimately surrendered. Now, but amongst the chaos and devastation of the American defeat, Donald Blackburn refused to lay down his arms. Now, together with Russell Volkman, the pair escaped from Bataan and raised a guerrilla army of over 22,000 men to fight the Japanese. Under Volkman's leadership, Blackburn organized a guerrilla regiment from among the tribes in the Kagian Valley. Now, Blackburn's headhunters, as they came to be known, devastated the Japanese within the eastern provinces of North Luzon. Now, after the war, Blackburn remained on active duty, and he played a key role in initiating special forces operations in Southeast Asia. And in 1959, as commander of the 77th Special Forces, he spearheaded Operation White Star in Laos. And this was the first major deployment of American special forces to a country with an active insurgency. Now, six years later, Blackburn took command of the highly classified Studies and Operations Group, which was known as SOG. And this was arguably the premier special operations unit throughout the entire Vietnam War. Now, sending cross-border teams to conduct reconnaissance missions in Laos, Blackburn discovered the previously unconfirmed uh, supply networks of the infamous Ho Chi Minh Trail. And returning to the United States, Blackburn then took a brief tour of duty as the, as the assistant commander of the 82nd Airborne Division. And following that assignment, he was appointed the special assistant to the chairman on counterinsurgency and special activities, or SACSA for short. And this position essentially made Blackburn a special operations SAR. Now, in this capacity, he was the architect of the Sante Prison Raid, which was the largest rescue mission of the Vietnam War, and indeed the largest special forces operation of the entire war. Now this slide right here will give you uh, an example of the path that Don Blackburn's career ultimately took. This is an executive summary of the highlights of his career. A Blackburn story begins on September 14th in the year in, in the year 1916. He was born in West Palm Beach, Florida, but he spent his formative years growing up in the 
suburbs of Tampa. And in many ways, Don Blackburn was also a product of his time. His, his was a generation that many historians refer to as the, as, as, as the greatest generation. And like many young men of his day, he was, he, he was, also, he was, he was also very patriotic. From an early age, he held a remarkable fascination for all things military. And after graduating from high school in 1934, he enrolled in the Army ROTC program at the University of Florida. Now, four years later, he graduated with a commission as a second lieutenant of infantry in the Army Reserve. Now, Blackburn very much wanted to be on active duty, but the Thompson Act of 1932 ultimately kept him from pursuing this dream. Now, because the isolationists in Congress at the time wanted to keep military spending to a minimum, the Thompson Act restricted the number of ROTC graduates who could enter active duty within a certain fiscal year. But two years later, the political climate of both the United States and Europe was, in fact, decidedly different. As the Nazis stormed across Europe, the U.S. passed the Selective Service and Training Act. Now, this dramatically expanded the size of our military, and Blackburn's request for active duty was finally approved on September 22, 1940. Now, his first orders initially assigned him to Fort Benning, where he served as a battalion signal officer in the 24th Infantry Regiment. And after spending less than a year at Fort Benning, he was unwillingly transferred to the Philippine Islands. Now, before we get into his Philippine assignment, it's important to understand the background and, and the history of the Philippine situation in 1941. Now, the Philippines had been a U.S. Commonwealth since the Spanish-American War in 1898, and the Philippines had just now begun their transition into full sovereignty. But by the time the Philippines had actually gained their independence, it was really little more than just a token gesture, because for years, ever since being an American Commonwealth, the relationship between the United States and the Philippines was something kind of like salutary neglect. Uh, the Filipinos, they, they had elected their own leaders, they had made their own laws, and they had conducted free trade with other nations but they enjoyed the full protection of the U.S. military. And as part of the independence deal, the U.S. agreed to help the Filipinos establish their own army. And to this end, the U.S. Army sent thousands of its young officers to the Philippines to serve as advisors and also to serve as low-level commanders in the newly budding Philippine Army. Now, Blackburn arrived in the Philippines in October of 1941, and he became an advisor in the 12th Infantry Regiment of the 11th Division, which was, which was part of the Philippine Army. Now, American forces in the Philippines fell under the jurisdiction of a body called the United States Armed Forces Far East, or USAFI for short. Now, when Blackburn arrived to take his position as an instructor and as an advisor, he found out that the Philippine Army was really an army that existed only on paper. His soldiers carried outdated rifles that hadn't been fired since World War I, and nearly, and nearly three-quarters of his men also couldn't speak English. Half of his men, unfortunately, had no shoes because no money had been allocated for this requirement. But Blackburn didn't let any of these challenges get him down. He spent the next six weeks training these Filipinos in the art of American soldiering. And on December 8th of 1941, he had the unenviable task of taking these ill-prepared troops into combat. Now, shortly after their surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese began their invasion of the Philippine Islands. By spring of 1942, the American Philippine forces had retreated to the edge of the Bataan Peninsula. And while this was happening, Blackburn was reassigned to the headquarters staff of the 11th Division, where he became good friends with Major Russell Volkman. Meanwhile, the situation on Bataan continued to deteriorate, and on April 9th of 1942, American forces finally surrendered to the wrath of the rising sun. 
But to Don Blackburn and also to Russ Volkman, surrender was just not acceptable. Now, a few days before the surrender, Volkman found a small glimmer of hope within a few intelligence reports that he had gathered from the division command post. According to these reports, there were a few Philippine army regiments that had been caught behind the enemy lines in the mountain province of North Luzon. Some of these regiments continued to harass the Japanese's rear echelons, while others had simply dissolved into the wilderness. And since Mountain Province was a hotbed of American support, Volkman and Blackburn thought that it would be the ideal place to start a resistance movement and continue the fight against the Japanese in the form of guerrilla warfare. It was a bold idea, and neither of them were sure that it would absolutely work, but it was better to take their chances in, in, inside the jungles than, than to take their chances inside of a POW camp. Now, as the enemy closed in on their division headquarters, Blackburn and Volkman narrowly escaped into the jungles of North Luzon. And over the next six months, their journey was fraught with sickness, starvation, and close calls with the Japanese foot patrols. When they finally got to Mountain Province, Blackburn found that several of these Philippine army units had, had indeed remained in the area. And Volkman organized all of these displaced units into five regiments and brought them under one command, uh, a guerrilla unit known as the United States Armed Forces in the Philippines of North Luzon. And under Volkman's leadership, Blackburn organized a regiment from the tribes in the Kagian Valley. Now this slide here shows the general area of operation that, that Don Blackburn was responsible for. Now Blackburn assumed command of a regiment encompassing the Kagian River Valley, which was generally all of the eastern provinces in North Luzon. Now, aside from the Philippine Army soldiers, there were many native tribesmen who wanted to volunteer for the guerrilla fight as well. And as Blackburn trained these natives in, in, in marksmanship and small unit tactics, they soon earned the nickname of Blackburn's Headhunters. Now, with nearly 5,000 guerrillas at his back, Don Blackburn began a campaign that systematically destroyed the Japanese forces in the Kagian Valley. And he started by eliminating Japanese spies in towns along the Kagian River. Now, with the enemy's fifth column gone, he then began to organize raids on Japanese garrisons, supply depots, and also fuel dumps. His campaign in the Kagan Valley got an even greater boost in the middle of 1945 with the arrival of the U.S. Sixth Army. Now, there was a composite unit known as Task Force Baker, which consisted of elements of the Sixth Ranger Battalion, as well as the 510th Engineer Group. Now, this unit linked up with Blackburn in June of 1945, and together, Blackburn's headhunters and Task Force Baker cleared the Japanese from the seaport town of Apari, which, which coincidentally was the largest enemy anchorage in the Philippine Islands. And by late summer of 1945, the Japanese in North Luzon had been defeated at almost every turn. When, when Emperor Hirohito instructed his troops to lay down their arms, there was a general who was the, who, who was the local commander in Blackburn's area of operation who sent his chief of staff to Blackburn's headquarters to, to discuss the terms of surrender. Now, this was peculiar because at the start of the meeting, the chief of staff pulled out a map which had the entire Japanese disposition within the Kagian Valley. Blackburn noticed that there was a red circle right in the middle of the map that was drawn around the exact location of, of his guerrilla headquarters. But to Don Blackburn, this didn't make any sense. He asked the chief of staff, if you guys knew where I was this entire time, then how come you didn't attack me at my headquarters? And the chief of staff's reply was simple. I'm sorry, but there were just too many guerrillas. By my estimate, there, you must have had at least 10,000 guerrillas at your back. But, but Don Blackburn looked at him, and he said, I was the guerrilla leader, and I never had any more than two battalions at one time. The Japanese officer, needless to say, was speechless. Okay. 
This slide will give you an executive summary of Blackburn's career in between World War II and the start of the Vietnam War. He served in a variety of command and staff positions. Uh, his first position, right after the end of World War II, was coincidentally as the Provost Marshal right here in the Military District of Washington, a position that he held for a full year. He went on to serve as an instructor in the Department of Military Psychology and Leadership at West Point. He also served as a NATO attache in Norway and held a brief command as the CEO of the 3rd Training Regiment all the way down at Fort Jackson. Now, in 1957, he was assigned to the Military Assistance Advisory, Advisory Group, or MAG for short. And in this capacity, he served as the senior advisor to the 5th Military Region, which encompassed the entirety of the Mekong Delta. And during this year-long advisory gig, Blackburn noticed that, that uh, the South Vietnamese Army had no standardized training curriculum for its troops and had no coherent strategy to deal with the rising Viet Cong insurgency. And to make matters worse, the military regions within South Vietnam absolutely never shared intelligence with one another, and to boot, they rarely spoke to one another. Now, Blackburn took all of these observations to heart, and he eventually, he, he eventually devised a training program which uh, instituted a standardized base training curriculum for, for tactics and small unit patrols. Now, in 1959, Blackburn assumed command of the 77th Special Forces Group at Fort Bragg, and he organized Operation White Star. At the request of the Laotian monarchy, the 77th trained the Royal Laotian Army in the struggles against the Pathet Lao. Now, Blackburn returned to Vietnam in 1965 as the commander of the Studies and Observations Group, which was a highly classified special operations unit that had been created in early 1964. When Blackburn took command of SOG, however, the biggest problem that was facing U.S. forces at this time was the communist infiltration from the north. Everyone knew that they were coming in through Laos, and everyone knew that something was going on in Laos, but no one was entirely sure what. Now, Blackburn sent reconnaissance teams into Laos, which had previously been, been prohibited by the State Department, and all of Blackburn's reconnaissance teams made a startling discovery. They, they, they discovered the intricate supply networks of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Now, from 1966 onward, all of these cross-border operations uh, eventually expanded over into Cambodia and, and also into North Vietnam. And by the end of the war, SOG had, had achieved a remarkable 150 to 1 kill-to-loss ratio and destroyed or captured over 1,000 tons of enemy equipment that was moving along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Now, this is a picture of Blackburn inspecting one of his SOG camps in 1966. Now, in early 1969, Blackburn took uh, what would be the culminating position of his career. He reported to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he was appointed the SACSA. Now, on May 25th in the year 1970, Blackburn was, uh, was approached by an Air Force briefing team to ask if he could organize a mission using Special Forces troopers to organize a number of POWs that were being held at a place called Sante. He forwarded this proposal to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and said that he could pull off the mission and he didn't need a whole lot of resources to, he didn't need a whole lot of resources to do it. In fact, he could pull it off using only a handful of helicopters and only a few special forces teams. According to Blackburn, the North Vietnamese had played by their own rules for too long. They had, they had ignored all of the Geneva Conventions, they had violated their neighbor's neutrality, and they had committed various other war crimes uh, throughout the war. Now, the time had come, according to Blackburn, to strike the Vietnamese in their own backyard. Now, the Joint Chiefs of Staff finally approved Blackburn's plan, and the Sante rescue mission went forward. And from September 9th until November 10th of 1970, the Sante raiders trained under the utmost secrecy. 
They were permitted to have no contact with the outside world, and they weren't even told of their destination until after they arrived in Southeast Asia. And with 56 SF troopers boarding six Air Force helicopters, the Sante prison raid launched from an airbase in Thailand on November 18th in 1970. The raiders landed at Sante as they were scheduled, but they soon discovered that there were no POWs at the camp. There were, however, plenty of North Vietnamese. Dazed and confused, the North Vietnamese tried to rally a counteroffensive, but it was ultimately t- to no avail. Before the enemy even knew what was happening, the American raiders had already killed 30 of them. And a mere 27 minutes after their insertion, the Sante raiders were extracted by their helicopters. And even though no POWs had been rescued, not a single American life had been lost during the operation. Now, when the Raiders returned to the U.S., the mission was deemed a tactical success, but it was overshadowed by what many called an intelligence failure. As it were, the POWs had been moved to another camp some 15 miles away earlier that July. Opponents of the Vietnam War denounced the Sante Raid and feared that the treatment of American POWs would only get worse as a result. But as a matter of fact, just the opposite happened. Hanoi suddenly realized that their country was not impervious to American ground troops, and as a result, the treatment of American POWs vastly improved. Blackburn retired as a brigadier general on July 1st of 1970. In a career that spanned over 30 years, Blackburn proved himself to be a remarkable leader. In the wake of Japanese aggression, he picked up the pieces of a shattered Philippine-American army, and he organized them into a guerrilla regiment that destroyed the Japanese within the Kagan Valley. And in the opening days of the Vietnam War, Blackburn changed the course of special operations. By sending reconnaissance teams into Laos, Blackburn started a cross-border program that would eventually destroy over 1,000 tons of enemy hardware and kill thousands of enemy troops trying to infiltrate South Vietnam via the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And although the Sante Raid failed to recover any prisoners at all, its tertiary effects were felt, uh, were, were felt all throughout the North. And having made vital contributions to, in two of America's greatest conflicts, Don Blackburn proved himself to be a remarkable hero of the Special Forces. Now, after he retired, he worked for a, he, he worked for a think tank that was based right here in D.C. called Braddock, Dunn, and McDonald. And he worked there for the next 10 years before he retired for good in 1981. It was at that time that he moved to Sarasota, Florida, where he, where he remained for the rest of his life. And he, unfortunately, he tragically died on May 24th of 2008 following a long battle with Alzheimer's disease. He was 91 years old at the time. Okay, at this time I'd like to open it up for any questions that you all might have. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to assert the prerogative of the chair and ask the first question. Um, so if I understand correctly, the, the studies and observation group that he headed in Vietnam, Yes. Um, uh, if I understand from your book, mm-hmm. was performing many of the kinds of functions that the CIA had endeavored to perform. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the CIA failed, why studies and observation groups succeeded, if you think they did, yes. and, and what some of the, the differences were there in, in, in what they were trying to do and how they were trying to do it. Why this? Why the CIA failure and military comparative success. Okay. Well, starting in the early 1960s, the CIA had a project which it called Leaping Lena, and that was a cross-border reconnaissance program that was done entirely by the South Vietnamese. Now, unfortunately, being that it was run by the CIA, uh, the the program was uh, was subject to a lot of political oversight, and unfortunately, the political oversight that it had was pretty crippling. 
Uh, McNamara didn't want any Americans participating in it, and he wanted only the South Vietnamese to conduct the missions. I was further hamstrung by the fact that Americans had a limited participation in actually gathering the intelligence, and plus the American ambassador to Laos at the time also had his hand in the picture. He didn't want any of the Americans coming over the border to do reconnaissance. He maintained that because Laos was neutral, he didn't care what the North Vietnamese were doing. He didn't care if the North Vietnamese were violating the Laotian neutrality. All he wanted to do was uh, hold on to the fact that he was the ambassador and that his position as the ambassador did not permit any Americans coming into a country that was, at least technically speaking, on neutral terms. Now, what, what eventually happened with, with the CIA-led program was that it sent its cross-border reconnaissance teams into Laos, but almost none of them returned. In fact, out of the 40 operatives that were initially inserted, only four of them returned. And it became clear at this time that if we wanted to observe anything of any useful consequence in Laos, that we had to have Americans on the ground, we had to have, we had to have a wider berth in our intelligence operation at the time, and uh, we, also had to, uh, we also had to train the South Vietnamese Army in all of our techniques of intelligence gathering and reconnaissance. And that's where SOG picked up in early 1965, and this was the program that Blackburn actually put on the ground. Now, once you had an effective intelligence gathering operation, once you had the reconnaissance teams searching a wider area, and they had a wider berth for gathering that intelligence, that's when all the little supply networks and all the supply nodes of the Ho Chi Minh Trail finally became evident. That's when he took that information to General Westmoreland and, and uh, finally got the blessing to conduct full-scale operations against the NVA and Viet Cong that were operating along the trail. If I can just press you on one, one point there, and then we'll give the audience a chance. Um, okay. So if I understood correctly, you just said that one of the reasons the CIA wasn't having success was that these uh, people, they were dropping into uh, the, uh, you know, the, the Ho Chi Minh Trail area or in, in the enemy areas were all non-Americans. Um, was that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. But the picture you showed of General Blackburn, um, or was he Colonel Blackburn at the time? Anyway, yeah, he was Colonel. Yeah, yeah. Colonel Blackburn. Right. Um, in, inspecting uh, one of his SOG units seemed to show Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. uh, that he was inspecting Vietnamese troops. So, was, so under uh, Citizen Observation Group, were, was he ins were they inserting sort of mixed Vietnamese and American teams? Or I don't quite understand what 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 really the difference was in in that respect. Okay. Well, the teams were entirely composed of Vietnamese operatives, but they were being led by Americans at this point. And one of the reasons why the CIA project failed was because they were having all, all, of, the Viet, all of the Vietnamese take care of it. And the only problem with that, it, it, wasn't a question of, it, it wasn't a question of their race. It was just a question of, okay, the, the Vietnamese, were, unfortunately, they, uh, they, they didn't have a firm grasp on the concepts of reconnaissance. They didn't have a firm grasp on, uh, on concealment or how to patrol. And this was growing out of the larger problems that he witnessed when he was an American advisor back in the late 1950s. So what he needed to do was, okay, I need to put American advisors in charge of this, and they need to be the ones that are leading the mission. Because I know that the South Vietnamese are capable. We just have to train them. They have to have the proper training. They have to have the proper techniques. If we just leave these guys to their own devices, we're going to see exactly like what we saw a few years ago, and all the teams are going to get killed, and we're going to have we're going to have most of the guys. Uh, have, unfortunately, most of the guys come back dead. Other questions? Uh, yeah, right there. Uh, yeah. I have a kind of a line question. Okay. I, who ran the? I, they had satellite surveillance and of these areas, as I understand it. Who ran that? Did they share intelligence with the CIA? 
Are you talking about the Ho Chi Minh Trail or for the Sante Raid? Uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Right. Y yes, they had, a, they had a certain satellite reconnaissance program that was actually run through the NSA and was also part of the DIA. And they, they did share intelligence, but one of the key problems was, was, was that the NVA were very adept at hiding it. What they would do is they would take trees from elsewhere in Laos and they would build them around the trail to make a canopy over the trail, and, uh, and therefore that would make it a, a, a very difficult to spot from the air. And where Blackburn came in, he put his troops on the ground to actually see this and say, you know, hey, there's a lot of moved earth and, and there's a lot of disturbed soil. So now we're keen to what, uh, to what the NVA is doing. If I could just ask him to make a quick comment on that as well. It's also worth remembering that at this period of time, satellite reconnaissance was still operating off of film return systems. It's not that we didn't have what we call now electro-optical satellites, which are beaming imagery down in near real time. You had to wait until you'd taken enough pictures to make it worthwhile to drop literally a bucket of wet film. So that, you, you know, you, you might be lucky and get a picture in a day, but it might be three, four weeks. On the other hand, of course, they also had a lot of overhead reconnaissance from mm -hmm. aircraft yeah. as well, which did not obviously have that problem. But, sorry, I think we had one here. Yes. Lieutenant, two brief questions. The first is several yes. times SOG is referred to as highly classified. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, do, do you know enough about SOG's operations to um, flesh out your portrait of Blackburn? And did he leave any writings or memoirs on counterinsurgency? Okay. Okay. The question was that is was that given that uh, a lot of these SOG operations were highly classified, do I have enough to actually paint an effective portrait of what Blackburn did? And the second question you said was, did he leave any memoirs? Okay. Well, in answer to the first question, uh, the answer is most decidedly yes, because in the early 1990s, many of the SOG operations were declassified by the Department of Defense. And this, this actually opened up the door to uh, have, have, have a lot of scholars come in and to uh, publish their own research on SOG operations at that time. One book that I can recommend to you is a book written by a man named John Plaster. Uh, his work on SOG is pretty much the seminal text that's out there. Also, the original uh, command annexes from SOG operations were declassified, and they were also published in the early 1990s. Okay. Well, Blackburn didn't have any memoirs per se, but he did conduct several interviews with the Special Warfare Center, and he also uh, conducted an extensive interview with the, with the U.S. Army's Military History Institute back in 1983. Blackburn also conducted two more interviews in 1988, and he also conducted one again in 1993, and uh, all of the transcripts to those interviews are available, and you actually see firsthand how he fleshes out his own narrative. Yes, sir. How did Blackburn interact? What how did he, um, I don't know, what's his, how does he interface with uh, Colby? How did he interface with Colby? William Colby. Oh, William Colby. Uh, he, he never mentioned any specific interactions that he had with Colby. At least there were none that I read in the transcripts. Uh, he, from what I recall, he never expressed any, um, any sentiments good or bad for William Colby. Can I, can I broaden that question? Do we have anything with him expressing his views about the CIA uh, and its competence and ability or lack thereof? Oh, 
absolutely. Uh, Blackburn was never at a loss for words for how unfit he thought the CIA was to, uh, to handle all these military operations. And as a matter of fact, if I can backtrack a little bit, uh, this goes back to a big point of contention that the Army had with the joint CIA operations that it did throughout the Korean War. And if you guys get a chance to take a look at my first book, about Russell Volkman. This was a point that Volkman drove home when he was developing the concepts behind special forces. He said that I think it's essentially dangerous and unworkable to have a civilian agency in charge of all these paramilitary capabilities. He said what I think they should be limited to is, is uh, simply a matter of intelligence gathering. You know, please let, the, uh, please let the military side of the house be executed by a professional military. I've got one more question. Yes. Um, about the Sante raid, mm -hmm. tactically, technically, mm -hmm. came off wonderfully, except that, as, as you noted, there were no American prisoners there to be rescued. Um, from the point of view of hindsight, is this something that you know we could have figured out? Were there missed clues here, or was you know this uh, you know a, a failure that would probably happen repeatedly? Where, in retrospect, was it this, should it have been discernible? Could it have been discernible that the American had already been, been moved away. Uh, actually, it was. And uh, as a matter of fact, in the, in the months and in the days leading up to the Sante raid, Blackburn got a report that suggested, it, it hadn't been confirmed, but it was suggested that the Sante prisoners had already been moved elsewhere. But he, he pretty much took it with a grain of salt. What he decided at that point was, okay, I have a lot of different intelligence sources on the ground, and of all the sources on the ground that I have there, only one is telling me that the prisoners may have been moved. Okay? But at this point, we've already put so much time and we've already put so much effort into trying to put this rescue operation together that I think it would be unforgivable if we called off the whole operation now simply on one report that suggests they may or they may not have been moved. Okay? We are never going to have this type of opportunity again. We are never going to have this type of opportunity to strike the Vietnamese inside their heartland. And if there's any time that we should do it, then we really need to do it now because these guys need to be shown that their homeland isn't so safe from, from, from the power of the U.S. military. Now, what, what a lot of people have referred to the intelligence failure as is just a compartmentalization of intelligence, that you had so many different agencies working together to bring their intelligence to Blackburn and to bring their intelligence to the planning committee of the Sante raid, that somewhere along the line that compartmentalization of intelligence it interrupted the flow of the priority intelligence to the people who were making the plans. So there wasn't enough, wasn't enough lateral sharing to see the people that the big picture. Is that Yes. Similar to what we've seen with some of the 9-11, uh, you know, those warrants. Yes. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, well, Anything else? Uh, Mike will be glad to meet you and sign books at the back, but let's thank Mike Bardia for coming to the <laughs>